We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 5. If you want to open your Bibles there. As you're making your way there, I'm Pastor Ted. If you're new to the church, how you doing? I am the guy who is sleep deprived. We had prayer this morning at 6.30 and everybody, you know, a lot, several people there complaining about how tired they were. I'm like, I got you all beat. I took six grandchildren to Disneyland yesterday. I party hard, baby. It was, man. So I'm going on three hours of sleep. So uh, I'm all hopped up on caffeine and here we go. Second Samuel chapter 5. Title of the message today is When the Right King is on the Throne. When the Right King is on the throne. Now, we have seen in this world plenty of examples of when the wrong king is on the throne, when the wrong ruler is in place. Probably the the worst example of all, best example, but the worst example, uh, 1934, Adolf Hitler rose to be in authority. He became the chancellor of Germany. He promised strength, he promised prosperity, and By the time his rule ended 11 years later, he had murdered 11 million people. Uh, He had caused the deaths of millions more who lay dead on the battlefield. And by the time he was all done, Germany lay in ruins. Germany chose the wrong leader. Bottom line, they trusted in the wrong leader. Proverbs 29.2 says this, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. And as I said, sadly, just, you know, throughout our recent history, over the last hundred years, we've seen over and over again examples of this. Hitler, uh, I gave you as an example, Joseph Stalin murdered nine million of his people. Uh, Paul Pot in Cambodia murdered over a million of his people. And wicked rulers, just the list goes on and on. Idi Amin of Uganda, Papadoc Duvalier from, from, uh, from Haiti, I almost said Hamid, from Haiti. <laughs> uh, Saddam Hussein from Iraq, uh, the Shah of Iran. Over and over again, just these wicked rulers. And they all prove the word of God. That when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. Spiritually speaking, the same thing is true in your life and in my life. That when the righteous king is on the throne of our heart, well, the, the result is rejoicing. There, the, you have cause for rejoicing. Your wife has cause for rejoicing. Your husband, as it were, has cause for rejoicing. Your children has cause for rejoicing when the right king is on the throne of your heart. But if the throne of your heart is occupied by an unrighteous king, Well, every other king steals, kills, and destroys. If you have an unrighteous king on the throne of your heart, it will steal your joy, it will kill your relationships, it will destroy your hopes and your dreams. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to see this truth manifested here in 2 Samuel chapter 5. Because as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 5, well, we know the nation of Israel, they have been groaning. They have had an unrighteous king. Saul uh, has left them weakened. He's left them defeated. And after Saul's death, there was a scramble for power. People not willing to surrender the kingdom to the true and the right king who was David, called by God to rule. And so with a power struggle, you had people that were coming in, chief among them Abner, who saw an opportunity. He was the general of Saul's army, wanted to, you know, crave the power and the position for himself. So he takes Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and, or the, the, uh, yeah, the son of Saul, and he props him up. Uh, into power. He wants to make him king, but really Abner being the power behind the throne. And, uh, and so we see this happening, this unrighteousness of trying to grab, you know, this, this position. Um, when Abner is killed, the people see that the power behind the throne is dead. And so then you get this guy, Rachab, and, and his, his, his friend Benah there. And they, they decide that they're going to kill Ishbosheth because, you know, again, well, we can't hope in that guy sort of thing. And, and all of this just proving, man, when the righteous are, are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. And today what we're going to see at long last is that the right king ascends to the throne. We're, uh, we're going to pick it up. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Then 
all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron, and they spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. And also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. First point, if you're taking notes... The right king assumes the throne when we come to him. The right king assumes the throne when we come to him. Because here's what we read right out the gate. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David. When then? When? When they tried everything else. When they had tried everything else. And this is exactly what happens with so many of us. With so many of us, the thing is, Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But the, writers of he- the writer of Hebrews says, without faith, it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That word rewarder is uh, interesting uh, in, in uh, Hebrews 11.6. It, it means one who pays wages. And, and the Bible, well, it, there's two types of wages that it says that we can expect to receive from God. We can receive wages, first of all, as, as a reward for those that diligently seek Him. We can receive wages from, as those who diligently seek God. Or secondly... If you read in Romans chapter 3, 23, and then Romans 6, 23, well, Romans 3, 23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6, 23 says that the wages of sin is death. So this is the, the reward for those that won't seek God. And so the issue here is that for, for the the nation of Israel to finally come to David, well, it's after they've tried everything else and in that they're not so much different than so many of us, so many people in the world today. They won't come to Jesus and put the proper king on the throne of their heart till they've tried everything else. I think of Jenny from Forrest Gump. If you remember the movie Forrest Gump, and here's Jenny, and she's the object of his affection. And, and she, all he wants to do is love her, care for her, provide for her. And she, really, deep down, what she wants is all of those things. But Forrest ain't her first choice by, by a long shot. And she seeks to fill herself and fill her life with everything she can. She tries drugs. She tries al- alcohol. She tries promiscuity. Everything that there is. And she's a good example for us in this because what is it that brought her around finally to the place to where she finally got into a place where she, where what really was the deepest longing of her heart she got? Well, it wasn't until, man... She'd tried everything else. And it's so sad. You read through the book of Romans, and you know it starts off in Romans chapter 1. As, as you read it, it basically says that God reveals himself to, to all of creation. That men and women are without excuse because God makes it abundantly clear that, that he exists, that he, that he is God. And, 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 and he makes it so abundantly clear in his word. He loves you desperately. All he wants is, is your best. But he says that there, will peep, there are, there are a, a host of people that they refuse to see God. They refuse to come to God. And, and, and they, just, they, they, they flat out will resist God. It's been said that there's none so blind as those who will not see. And as you read through Romans chapter 1, you get to to verse 27, and basically what it says there is that at a certain point in time, God will give you over. 
to your sin. And, and what happens is he says that, you know, he's given this whole group of people over to their sin, Romans 127, and basically that they receive in themselves the penalty of the error that was due for their sin. And, and primarily what he's talking about there is sexual sin. And, and, you know, there, were, there was all this fervor and all this uproar internationally when AIDS first came out and people would point to Romans one twenty seven and say, God said so in his word that people engage in this sexually promiscuous activity and they receive in themselves the penalty for, for their sin, the penalty that was due. And, and people outraged over, how could you be so insensitive and say such an audacious thing? Well, that, that is exactly, precisely what that verse is saying. And it's not that God says, oh, I'm going to, you know, you, you're behaving in that way and I'm going to afflict you. It's just the penalty which is due. David Brown in his commentary, and David Brown's commentary exists a long time before AIDS ever came on the scene. And his commentary on Romans 127 basically says that, that what this verse is talking about is the physical and moral ways that vice is made self-avenging under the righteous government of God. In other words, there are consequences for our sin. There's consequences. And what happens is, is that if somebody wants to try everything else, wants to reject the God who loves them and who gave his son to die for them and de- desires desperately that they should know him, but they're bound and determined to reject him, God has no other choice but to turn you over to yourself. And if you want to live in a way that God has begged you not to do because he knows that its end is the way of death. The Bible says there's a way it seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And you want to do that, well then now you want to blame the consequences on God and accuse him of being unloving it's as if you as a parent say don't touch the stove it's hot please don't touch the stove it's hot please don't touch the stove it's hot and then the kid touches the stove and turns around and looks at you and says why did you do this to me you're like I did not do that to you I begged you not to do it there's consequences for your sin and so often we want to try everything else. We want to do everything else. We want to, you know, it's like the, the, this is just what we're bound and determined to do. The Bible teaches that, man, when a brother's in sin, we need to go to him. We need to say, man, don't do this, please. We need to try and persuade him of the error of his ways. But, but the Bible teaches that as the body of Christ, there reaches a certain point in time when somebody's bound and determined to hit something hard and you can't talk him out of it, that you just got to, at some point, turn them over to Satan. That's what the Bible says. And that doesn't mean turn them over to Satan with the attitude that says, you know what, go to hell. That's not, the, that's not what turning them over to Satan means. What turning them over to Satan means is, look, they won't listen. So there ain't no teacher like the burnt finger. So maybe if they run with Satan for a while, what they'll realize is it ain't all it's cracked up to be. And then, having tried everything else, you'll come back and you will acknowledge the one true and living God. And maybe today that describes your life. Maybe today you're like, somebody sent Pastor Ted an email, man. And he's pre... No, listen, God's got your address. And maybe today you've hit something hard. Maybe today you've been just living a pattern of hitting stuff hard. Then they came to David. Why? After they trusted everything else. And maybe today you need to come to Jesus Christ because you've trusted everything else. Listen, you need to hear God loves you desperately. He loves you so much he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for your sins in your place. God loves you with an everlasting love. And because he loves you, the Bible says he disciplines those he loves. His hope is that the consequences are going to turn you from your sin. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word confess, it just means to agree with God. What What does that mean? Agree with God that what you've been doing isn't right. And agree with God, more importantly, that God's paid the penalty for that sin. 
And, and, and so the faith, hey, without faith it's impossible to please God, but, it, but he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. He's one who pays wages and he doesn't want to pay you the wages that you sin deserves. All of sin falls short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. You get wages for what you've earned. I, did, I put in a day's work, pay me, you owe me. God's like, well, what, what you're owed as a person who's rejected Jesus Christ is death. You want me to pay you that? The wage that you've earned? Or do you want me to pay you the wage that Jesus Christ has earned for you? Which is to die on the cross for your sin in your place. And today, maybe today you're in that place and you need to hear God loves you. That God gave his son for you and that he desperately desires to know you. And I'm going to give you an invitation today at the end of the message that if you're here and you don't know where you're going to spend eternity, you don't know if you've cut yourself off from God in his eternal grace by rejecting his son, today you can make sure. And you can ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. You can put the proper king on your heart by coming to him. I'm going to give you that opportunity today. And notice again what the people say in verse 2 there. They, they basically say, you're the one, David, who led Israel in victory. You're the one anointed by God. In other words, we followed the wrong king. And we should have known better. My question for you today is, are you following the wrong king? Do you know better? What will it take for you to put the right king on the throne of your heart? What, what's it going to take for you to put the right king on the throne of your heart? Is it going to take a divorce? Is it going to take a DUI? Is it going to take a sexually transmitted disease? Your kids going to all grow up and move away and you, you're alienated from everybody because you have not lived your life with the proper king on the throne of your heart? Maybe you're just empty. You know, the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And so many people, like the woman we talked about last week at the well, who drank from everything she could that the world had to offer, and nothing left her satisfied. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've, maybe you've tasted and seen that the world is bad, that the king that you've placed on the throne of your heart has left you empty. You can taste and see that the Lord is good today. So then, after they tried everything else, all the tribes of Israel came to David, made him their king. Having made David their king, he now leads them into battle. Verse 6 says, And the king and his men, that sounds wonderful, doesn't it? At last, David, the king and his men, they went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking David cannot come in here. In other words, they're saying, We can put all the, bl- the worst people we've got, the blind, the lame, they'll repel you. We are so fortified. There ain't nobody coming in here. And they could have this attitude because they have held this city for 400 years. And so they're like, eh, you know what? Even the blind and the lame are going to repel you. Nevertheless, verse 7 says, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And now David said on that day, whoever climbs up by the way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. He just says that like in contempt of what they said. Apparently they're the lame and the blind that you're going to beat because that's who they say they're going to put up there is David's mocking sort of thing here. He shall be chief and captain. Whoever, whoever climbs up this, this water course, this, the, the, the way of the water shaft. And with this way of the water shaft, apparently there was water that drained down from the city and there was this actual shaft that it drained down. And he's like, David's being the man of war that he is, he goes, that's the way in right there. It ain't gonna be easy, but whoever can climb up that water shaft, he's the one that's gonna get in the city. And whoever's got guts enough to do that, I'm gonna make him captain. I'm gonna make him the, 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 the chief and the captain. Therefore, they, they say the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And you read First Chronicles chapter 11, it tells us that Joab was the guy that did it. Verse 9, Then David dwelt in the stronghold, and he called it the city of David, and David built all around from the millow and inward. 
First point is that the right king assumes the throne when we come to him. Second point is that when the right king is on the throne, strongholds are conquered. When the right king (coughs) is on the throne, strongholds are conquered. As I said, Jerusalem has been under the dominion of the Jebusites for 400 years. Now, it wasn't supposed to be. God told the Israelites 400 years before this, he he had said, listen, you know, he commanded Israel, go in, take the whole land. It's all yours. I'm giving it to you. He told them that. But the enemy still held the city. And this continued even under Saul's reign. Now, here's the thing about Saul. Saul was so focused on his own kingdom, he largely ignored the enemy. He was so focused on, I got to get David, that he wouldn't even protect his own people. You'll recall when the Philistines, in 1 Samuel 23, attacked the city of Keilah, Saul apparently didn't even care. He was too busy trying to get David. David's the guy who cried out to God and said, hey, the Philistines are attacking Keilah. Do you want me to go and help them? Saul should have been the guy doing that. Saul wasn't doing it. He ignored it because he was pursuing his own ends, his own objectives. And so his focus was on David. And ultimately, by ignoring the enemy, Saul gave ground up to the enemy. He wasn't taking ground, he was losing ground. And the lost ground caused the Philistines to gain a foothold. And what happened is it ultimately spelled death and defeat. For Saul and his people. It might have been an Amalekite who finally took Saul's life, but it was the Philistines who brought him to his knees because he gave up ground. Here's the point of application for us today that when the right king was on the throne in Israel, the stronghold of the enemy fell. And likewise, when the right king, King Jesus, is on the throne of your heart, Well, what's going to happen is territory that that should have been given to him long ago, that's now going to be conquered. Some of you have territory in your life that the enemy has taken. And God wants you to conquer that territory. He wants him, himself, his son, Jesus Christ, to be on the throne of your heart. And you have those areas in your life that have been conquered by the enemy. And he wants you to go and take those strongholds in Jesus' name. And I don't know what those strongholds are, but sitting in your chair, you know exactly what those strongholds are. You know exactly what those sins in your life that you're like, this is a stronghold in my life. Maybe it's a porn addiction. Maybe it's an alcohol addiction. Maybe it's a a drug addiction. Maybe, maybe you, you deal with anger constantly and it's ruined so many relationships. Maybe a stronghold in your life is fear. Maybe, maybe th- that, that just fear governs everything that you do, every choice that you make. God wants you to walk by faith, but you walk by fear. You make all your decisions by fear. And God would say to you, no, no, no. King Jesus, on the throne of your heart, takes every stronghold. That's what I've called you to. But perhaps you've allowed that stronghold to exist. And perhaps even like Saul, you not only have allowed the stronghold to exist, but you have other areas that were once God's that are now, you're losing ground. Alan Redpath said, I want to say to you in the name of the Lord Jesus that there is no habit that has gone so deep, but that the power of the blood of Jesus can go deeper. And there's no entrenchment of sin that has gone so far, but the power of the risen Lord by His Holy Spirit can go further. Hey, are you losing ground to the enemy today? Are there strongholds in your life? Because King Jesus wants to set you free. It all comes down to, listen, let the right king on the throne of your heart so that the stronghold can be conquered. 2 Samuel 5, verse 9, as we continue, it says, Then David dwelt in the stronghold, and he called it the city of David, and David built all around from the millow and inward. And so David went on, and he became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. And then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, and carpenters, and masons, and they built David a house. And so David knew that the Lord had established him as the king over Israel. And that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. 
First point is that the, when the right king assumes the, th- the throne, the, 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 right king, we, the right king assumes the, the throne when we come to him. The second point is that when the right king is on the throne, strongholds are conquered. Third point, when the right king is on the throne, godly strongholds are fortified. When the right king is on the throne, godly strongholds are fortified. You're not going to give up existing territory. No, you're going to be fortified in that stronghold. We see there in verse 9, it says that uh, David built from the millow inward. That word millow, if you wanted to circle it nearby, you could write this, you could write fullness. Because that's what the root word of that that word means. It means fullness. Specifically, this is talking geographically about a stone embankment that was built on the southeastern side of the mount to support additional buildings and a wall. This is, this is not unlike what we're doing at our building project on Santiago Road, that we, our existing pad, we're going to push out, we're going to build a, 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 God willing, a, a, a retaining wall, and the, the, the sanctuary is going to go on that so we can make best use of, of the land. And, and so what happens is we've got to build that retaining wall, and, and then there, there needs to be a fullness or a filling of the land. And so this is specifically what this is talking about, but it's more than that because there's a fullness in David's life. There's a fullness in David's life because the strongholds are being fortified, because King Jesus is on the throne, and King David, a picture of Jesus Christ, is on the throne. And so the strongholds are being fortified. And you couple that idea with what verse 10 tells us that, that there in verse 10, David went on and became great and the Lord God of hosts was with him. And so what's happening here is that the Lord God of hosts is with him. There's a fullness in his life. And when the right king is on the throne, we will be going, we will be growing and there will be a fullness to what's happening in our lives. Is this your experience? Is this your experience? Are you going? Are you growing? Is there a fullness to your life? Is your life full? And I want you to notice there that the, the, the king of Tyre, he, he acknowledges this. He blesses David. He, he says, hey man, I, welcome, welcome to your throne, buddy. Why? Because he sees, he sees the fullness of what's going on in David's life. I'll illustrate this with a story. We had... When, when we were building our, our last church, and we there on Scott Road, and we were much like we are now in, in, the, in, in size, and we we're also in kind of the same state to where it's like, you know, we're working on our plans, and we're working on our financing, and we've got, you know, some money for the down payment and all, working with the bank, and the bank basically said, you're almost there, you just need about a quarter million dollars more to come in down, you know, and we're like, we ain't got it. And, and so we're, you know, trusting in the Lord by faith and all, and, and a guy by the name of Jeff Dorman was working with us. Jeff, at the time, was overseeing the conference center. He actually, he was an attorney, he worked for Pastor Chuck Smith, and, and he was the guy that brokered the deal down there, and he was sort of helping us get, you know, things situated, and Jeff's like, hey, you guys are short a quarter of a million dollars. We're like, yeah, can you write us a check, you know, kind of thing. He's like, no, but let me see what I can do. He goes to Chuck Smith and he says, listen, God's doing a work, man. There, there is just a fullness to this ministry. And, uh, and people are coming to Christ and, and, and all. And I really think, man, they, they're, they're, they're close. With a little help from you, man, we could do this thing. And we sat down there with, with Pastor Chuck and he's asking us questions and, and all. And, and it was, you know, it was... Just the grace of God just moved upon the heart of Pastor Chuck. He's like, yeah. He didn't give us the money. He basically said, oh, yeah, I'll loan it to you, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and then he promptly came and did our church dedication and looked around and said, called Jeff over. He's like, they can afford to repay me sooner, you know, kind of deal. <laughs> and, and we did. We paid him back. But, we, but what prompted all of this was that the, there was just a fullness to what God was doing. And everybody could see it. And the same thing with David going on. There's just a fullness to what's going on. He's, he's there, he's established, he's building, he's ruling, he's reigning. God's doing a miraculous thing and it's evident for, for everybody to see. Man, God just doing this neat work. Verse 12 is wonderful. It says, so David knew 
that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. Listen, don't miss that. David knew that God had exalted him. This, this was, you, you got to understand this in the original language. The picture here is that what, what David knew was this had nothing to do with him. That's what's, that's what's being conveyed here in the original language. What's being conveyed is David knew this is God. This is God. Listen, that's what God wants for you and me. That's what he wants for our lives to be. That we would come to him and yield to him and trust him and just make our hearts the throne for Jesus Christ so that he could do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all you can ask or think. That's what God wants to do in your life. He wants to do stuff in your life that will blow your mind. And it will blow your mind all that's required. It's not that you do good and try harder. It's not that you have so much to offer God. It's that you just simply say, I'm going to let you be Lord of my life. I'm going to let you have the throne of my heart. And God says, I'm going to blow your mind with everything that I'm going to do. And this is what David comes to. God blows his mind and he just goes, this is God. I know it. And not only that, but what you got to see here is his heart behind it because he doesn't say, like his predecessor Saul says, oh, you know, God's blessed me, God's given me victory, God's given me this this position, so what am I going to do with it? Well, hey, how about if we do this? How about we erect a monument of me? Right? And that's what Saul does. And sadly, we've seen guys in ministry that do that. They're like, hey, it's all about me. Well, no, it, it, if, if it's anything, it, it's not you. I hope it's not you. David knew that the Lord had established him, listen, for the people's sake. How can we personalize this? Look, anything that God does in your life to establish you, he's doing it for the sake of the people. Dads, this, this preach is hard to you. Because, you know... God, if he's moving in your life, if you take your heart and you want to completely surrender your heart to the Lord and you want to say, God, you know, establish me, provide for me, God will do that. But when he does that, he's not doing it for you and for you alone. He wants you, he's establishing you for your wife's sake. He's establishing you for your children's sake. The Bible says, to whom much is given, much is required. God wants to, to do this work. And here's what we got to keep in mind. At this time, these events, they're taking place during the transition in Israel's history, right? From the time of the judges to the time of the kings and the prophets. And this was a time when everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. And because God loves his people, and because he wanted to appoint a king who would faithfully lead them, he found David who's, who's going to assume the throne and keep always in his mind it's for the people's sake, because God loves the people. Second Samuel chapter 5, verse 13, continuing, it says, And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. Also more sons and daughters were born to David. And this is, again, the Bible just makes, it doesn't make commentary on this. It just states it as, here's where he's at. We know that the Bible is giving us a picture of a chink in David's armor. He might be the right king. He might be, you know, taking his rightful place, but he's still a sinful man. And so, you know, here, here we have this. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, I have this note written in my Bible next to this, this verse. Charles Spurgeon said this. He says, the seeds of failure are most often sown during our success. Something to take a walk with there. So here's David. This is just saying there's trouble ahead. Verse 14. Now these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, uh, Eliada, and Eliphelet. Yeah, that guy right there. Why couldn't it just be Joe and Steve? That would be so much easier. So these, anyway, these are the names of, of his sons, and there's trouble ahead. David, we're going to see his greatest failure is going to come uh, from, from this little area of sin right here, as it were, this stronghold in his life. <clears throat> Verse 17, And now when the Philistines heard 
that they had anointed king, David king, over Israel, they threw a party. Woohoo! No, the Philistines are their enemies. So all the Philistines, it says, went up to search for David. And David heard of it, and he went down to the stronghold. The Philistines also went down, uh, went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, <coughs> Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. By the way, understand this in the original language, because here's what he's saying when he says, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. What God is saying to him is, It's already done. It's already done. He prays, and God's like, It's already done, David. You just follow through and you watch what I'm going to do. And so David went to Baal Perizim and David defeated them there and he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore he called the name of that place Baal Perizim, which it means breakthrough. Uh, and they left their images there and David and his men carried them away. These guys brought their images and their idols. You know you got the wrong idol when you leave it on the battlefield because you're running for your life, you know? You know you got the wrong idol when somebody else can steal it kind of thing. And so they left their images there. They're like, a lot of good that did me. He went up. He conquered them. He, they, they ran in retreat. Here's the fourth point. Write it down. When the right king is on the throne, the enemy always attacks. When the right king is on the throne, the enemy always attacks. I'll, I'll talk to somebody. They'll say, man, I, when I was in sin and doing what I was doing, yeah, I mean, there were consequences for my sin, but good grief, the minute that I became a Christian, well, I mean, it's like I, I lost my job. I got, you know, persecuted. I've got, I got all these troubles. Why? Well, because when you're going the same direction with the enemy, you're just going with the flow. When you turn and you start going against the enemy, that's when you start having head-on collisions. The enemy always attacks when he's losing ground. We as Christians should take note from that. We, when we lose ground, we should go on the attack. Well, the enemy... When he loses ground, he goes on the attack. And so this is what's happening here. And listen, there is never spiritual progress without warfare. You might want to write that down. It's good. And I can say that because I stole it. But there's never spiritual progress without warfare. You have to fight, man. And here's the thing. If you determine to read your Bible, you can just prove this true. If you say in your life, man, I'm going to read my Bible. Well, the enemy, will, will that's what he'll go after. You know, I'm going to get up every morning, I'm going to read my Bible, and the first morning your alarm goes, the clock doesn't go off, you know? Or whatever it is. And you're like, oh, man, why? The enemy's attacking it. If you determine to pray more, you're going to start getting distracted. You ever notice? It's like, oh, I'm going to pray. And then all of a sudden, miraculously, your mind starts working brilliantly. You start thinking all this stuff. Oh, I got to go there. Oh, I got to do this. Oh, I got to do that. The phone rings, whatever it is. And so you have to determine, okay, I know when I do this, I'm going to be attacked, how I'm going to counteract it. If I'm going to be in prayer, well, I should have a notepad nearby so that when I have a thought, it doesn't like drive me crazy, like I got to do something, I'm going to forget. Just jot it down, keep praying, you know? Come back to that. Thank you, Satan, you just reminded me of something I'll take care of when I'm done praying right now, you know? But the enemy will attack that. You decide, I'm going to be more faithful attending church. Well, the enemy's going to go after that. Oh, hey, uh, we got uh, soccer practice for your daughter, and uh, it's uh, Sunday at 11 o'clock. You're like, really, Satan? And this is what you're going to do to me kind of thing? You've got to make up your mind. I'm going to be attacked, and how am I going to overcome this? Well, notice how David overcomes it. Tells us there in verse 19 that he inquired of the Lord. He inquired of the Lord. Listen, David always triumphed. Always triumphed when he sought and obeyed the Lord. And we see this principle over and over and over again in Scripture. We see it here. You back up to chapter 2 of 2 Samuel, you see it there. He says to God, shall I go up to Hebron? God's like, go on up. And there he goes. And they anoint him to be king over Judah. We see it in 1 Samuel chapter 30. The Amalekites come. They burn down Ziklag. He's like, should I go after him? God's like, go after him. You're going to get your stuff back. 
1 Samuel 23, the Philistines are invading Keilah. Hey, should I go to Keilah and, and, and take care of them? God's like, yeah, you should, and I'll take care of you. David always triumphed when he saw it and obeyed the Lord. Now, I was talking to my wife about this yesterday and about how there's attacks. They just absolutely come. And when David, whenever he goes through an attack, whenever he sought the Lord, God always brought him, brought him victory. And she pointed out a great thing. She, you know, one of the things when you talk to people about this, this concept of, look, when you go to God in prayer, he's going to hear, he's going to answer, he's going to move, he's going to respond. And, and people are quick to go, well, that's cool, I'm all for that. But how can I recognize God's voice? Right? How, how do I know it's God? You ever been in that place? You're like, God, I'll do whatever you tell me, but, but I want to know that it's you. And, and so to, to answer this question, how did David hear God's voice? Well, a good starting place is to acknowledge that a lot of the times, God's voice is going to sound remarkably like your voice. And here's what I mean by that. I don't mean it in a good way. My, my granddaughter, Willow, Brenda and I, we were babysitting. We've got Willow there, my, my granddaughter Willow. Her sister Piper is there, and uh, her brother Jude is there. And so we're babysitting the three of them. Jude's got, got autism, and so uh, he's, uh, his speech hasn't developed as well. So Jude is trying to communicate with us. He's very frustrated that we can't understand him, and Willow decides she's going to interpret for him. And she says, uh, uh, Nani, Papa, he said he wants ice cream. No, you want ice cream, Willow, right? And, and a lot of times when we go to God in prayer, his voice sounds remarkably like ours because we want ice cream. So God, you're telling me that you want me to have ice cream. God's like, no, that's not what I'm telling you. I'm telling you you're fat, go on a diet, you know? <laughs> and uh, so uh, I hate when he tells me that. So uh, we got to understand, you know, we got to listen for his voice. Here's another thing I would say about listening for God's voice. I was, in, I was in my office the other day, and all of a sudden, I'm hearing voices outside my office. Um, they're, you know, down at the church, and, and all of a sudden, I hear my wife's voice. And uh, I'm like, oh, my wife's here. How did I know that? Because I know her voice. As it turns out, we, we hang out, you know? I mean, we're, we're, I've got an intimate 30-year-long relationship with my wife. So, so I know her voice because I've spent time with her. So, so you want to know God's voice, you spend time with him. You spend time in his word, and you'll hear his word when he's speaking to you. And so this is the thing is that we got to understand, listen, it's, it's familiarity, it's relationship, it's proximity. And the more you spend time with God and the more you seek God, the more you're going to discern his word. And so David inquires of the Lord, God answers, David gets the victory. Now here's what I want you to see next in our text, the enemy comes right back. Pick it up in verse 22 and it says, then the Philistines went up once again, it's me again, and they deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Where is that? It's the exact place that they attacked them before. Keep that in mind. The exact same place. Verse 23, Therefore David inquired of the Lord, and he said, You shall not go up, circle around behind them, and come up, come upon them in front of the mulberry trees, and it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly, for then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so as the Lord commanded him, and he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. This is point B of that when the right king is on the throne, that the enemy attacks. What we need to understand (coughs) is that when the enemy attacks... It's never one and done. He doesn't attack once and then go, oh, you don't, I mean, you don't, you've resisted, so I'll leave you alone. I mean, you see, you know, the enemy testing and tempting Jesus in the wilderness. And what's it say when, when all of his attacks and all of his testing and all of the, the work that he did was unsuccessful? It says that he, then he left him for an opportune time. 
That's what the enemy does in your life. He, he will, you, maybe today, you know, he attacks and you remember, oh, wait, wait, no, David prayed and he sought the Lord and I got to pray and I got to seek the Lord and the Lord's like, go, go after him, attack him back and you're like, okay, and he gives you victory and then tomorrow what happens is he comes back. He comes back and a lot of people are shocked at this. They're like, what? The, the enemy attacked again? Well, yeah, that's what he does. That's who he is. He'll continue to attack. And notice what David doesn't do here. And it's key to notice what he doesn't do because it's what you and I so often do. When the enemy attacks the second time or the third time in the same place, in the same way, well, what we so often will do is we'll say, well, this is what worked last time. I'll do it this time. And notice this time, God doesn't direct him to respond in the same way that he responded before. It's interesting, as you, as you read through the Old Testament, and you, you look at Moses, and God speaking and moving and, and, and all, and, and there in Exodus chapter 17, <coughs> you have the Israelites, they go to Moses, they're like, we're thirsty, would you cry out to God, we're, cry, we're out here in the wilderness for crying out loud, we need, we need something to drink. And so Moses goes to God, and God's like, yep, all right, here's what you do, Moses. I want you to go to the rock. I want you to strike the rock. And so he strikes the rock, and water comes pouring out. Now, what this is a picture is for the Israelites to look forward in faith to the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, who himself, Jesus would cry out in John's gospel, all you who thirst, come to me. Right? He, he likens himself to this living water that's poured out. And he makes the connection to this Old Testament example that God gave to Moses. That he is the rock that will be stricken and water will pour out. It's, it's, it's a typology to point to Jesus Christ. And so then a little bit later on, you, you see that the, the, the Israelites are crying out again. They come to Moses. They're like, hey, we, we need water again. Help us out. It's Numbers chapter 20, by the way. And, and what happens there is Moses goes, oh, okay, let me go back to God. Hey, God, they want water again. I don't know. I mean, just they're th- we're in the desert. They're thirsty again. They want water. And Moses is frustrated with them at this point because they're murmuring and complaining. He's like, are you big babies, you know, kind of thing. So he goes to God, and God's like, okay, here's what I want you to do. Go speak to the rock. Now, God is doing a very interesting typology here because what he's doing, again, he's painting a picture of Jesus Christ. And, and he wants him to speak to the rock because you and I, we can come boldly before the throne of grace. Jesus having been stricken for us. Jesus having given his life for us. We now have bold access to come boldly before his throne of grace and receive cleansing, receive forgiveness, receive eternal life. Something I pray some of you do today is that you come boldly to the throne of grace and say, God, save me, have mercy on me. Give me eternal life. Give me that water that'll quench the thirst that I can't seem to quench. But what does Moses do? He goes away from this meeting with God. He goes back to the people and he's like, you big crybaby, unsatisfied people. He says, must we provide water for you? What's he do? He doesn't speak to the rock. He strikes the rock. Totally blows this typology that that God the Father wanted to give, this picture of Jesus Christ. So what's God do? Well, in his grace and his mercy, the water comes pouring out of the rock because he's going to give the people water. They need it. But then he pulls Moses aside. He's like, dude, you ain't going into the promised land now because you didn't obey me. I told you to speak to the rock. I didn't tell you to hit the rock. I want people to understand God was basically saying to Moses, Jesus Christ was stricken once for sin. He died for sin. He paid the penalty once and for all. He hung on the cross. He said, it is finished. The, 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 the penalty for, for all of your sins, past, present, future, paid on the cross at Calvary. It's finished. No, no need for the dying of sins again. And now you, by God's grace, you can come to God. You don't have to die. You can come to God and, and say, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Forgive me. You can speak to the rock. You can speak to the rock today.
And He can save you. He can give you the hope of eternal life. He can change you. He can cleanse you. Guilt, shame. All the sorrow, all the heartache. He can take it all. You can speak to Him today. So often we're like Moses. We're like, oh, I know what I, I, I go through this sin and uh, I just do this. Now listen, what God's doing here, he's testing David. He wants to know, look, David, are you going to trust in a formula or are you going to trust in me? Because I want you to come back to me. And God speaks to him and what's he say? He says, look, last time I told you to go attack, this time I'm telling you, wait. And you wait until you hear the sound of marching in the treetops. Listen, sometimes in your life, you'll have the enemy attack and God will tell you, get after him, go get him. Go, go, you, you know, you, you, okay, you lost your job, you're unemployed. So start filling out some, some job applications. Start making some phone calls. Start, you know, looking, pounding the pavement, knocking on some doors. And sometimes God will say, you know what? Just wait. Just wait on me. Because I'm going to do something that's going to blow your mind. You wait until you hear the sound of my marching. And then you can go up because you know for certain it's all yours, man. Go and get it. I don't know what it is for you today, but listen, I'd ask you to take a walk with these three questions as we close. Question number one. Does the right king have the throne of your heart? Does the right king have the throne of your heart? Question number two, are there any strongholds in your life that need to be conquered? Do you have any strongholds in your life today? Areas that, man, the enemy's held for far too long. They need to be conquered. Third and final question, what godly strongholds in your life need to be fortified? What godly strongholds in your life do you need to fortify? Do you need to double down on, strengthen?